Hey everyone, my name is Eric Vento. This is another government to private podcast where we talk about the transition from the public to the private sector. Namely, that there's a number of different ways that people can take to realize their dreams and their goals. And this is yet another avenue that we hope that you will explore in your quest to find enjoyment and hopefully a fulfilling career as you transition out of the government in whatever capacity you find yourself. Today, we have Zachary Keaton with us. He currently works for a major organization over in EMEA, and we are here to talk about his transition out of the U.S. military into an overseas um, position. Zach, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, you know, I know we kind of talked a little bit before the call, but can you kind of give us a high-level background of you know, what you did in the U.S. military and kind of just lead into at what point did you kind of come to the decision that it was time to move on and look for something else? Yeah, sure. So I started off in 2007, uh, United States Air Force as a tactical aircraft mechanic, uh, basically all F-22s and A-10s is what I spent my career working or five years working on. Uh, during that time, stationed all over mainly the south from Virginia to Texas to Georgia. Uh, did that for five years. The last year and a half or so, I got picked up to do the um, demo team. So we did all the air shows around the world, which was a fantastic thing. Uh, made me find a love for public uh, speaking and public affairs through that. After that, I got uh, picked up to do geospatial intelligence and became geospatial intelligence for five to six years, working with special operations forces around the world. Stationed down at uh, Herbert Field, Florida, and it was a it was a fantastic time. Um, I got got very lucky in what I did. Became a uh, ISR tactical controller, and farmed out to special operations teams from every branch of service. Uh, spent a lot of time downrange, and uh, got to embed myself as really the only Air Force guy with these other branches, and it was one of the best times of my life. Uh, the problem was those back-to-back -back deployments and uh, the harsh environments, and then being by name requested. Uh, took a toll on me because I loved it and it was so hard to say no, but with a family at home, it's that balance that I couldn't achieve during that time. And at one point it became a, a question to myself, what is more important? Is it the military or family? So after multiple deployments and 13 surgeries, I said, okay, it's time that I look elsewhere. Uh, I'm not doing Afghanistan for a fourth time. Uh, it, it's too much, right? So during that last six months, I had a fantastic commander at AFSOC. And uh, the skill bridge, skill bridge program had just started. Um, and so he was all about it. And he said, Zach, if you're not going to stay for another nine years and retire, let's help you be successful in transitioning. And uh, I, I owe him everything. So he let me go. And at that time, skill bridge was fantastic. Uh, I know it's changed quite a bit since then. It's been five years now. But uh, then you could do it anywhere in the world uh, for six months for any company in any position, as long as they didn't pay you and your commander signed off. And my commander was like, go have fun, do whatever you want. <laughs> so I, I came over to Germany and had an interview with a chemical company um, for a UX position uh, internship. They really wanted me, but the problem was, and it still is a problem today that I'm actually looking to fix, is SkillBridge, you, the company has to agree not to pay you. Well, because of European and specifically German law, they have to pay you at least minimum wage because it is an internship. So the two clashed and they said, I'm sorry, we can't take that risk. I said, no problem. You know, 
and uh, went back to the U.S. and went with hiring our, uh, hiring our heroes out of Georgia. It was fantastic. Um, the guys that ran it, or guys and girls that ran it, were some of the best people I've ever met. Uh, helped me start my resume. Helped me with the interview skills because I joined at 17, right? And at 17 years old, I've waited tables. I worked on a farm shoeing horses, but you don't have that experience you have in corporate, right? So I'm facing now at, you know, at 11 years, I'm 28 years old, getting out of service. And I have no interview preparation. All I have is a little public speaking from working air shows and talking about airplanes, right? Uh, in the military. Uh, but I don't have that interview. I don't have the salary negotiations, only things that came from the transition assistance program, which were good, but they weren't exactly what I needed. So the Hiring Our Heroes really focused on that. Uh, we had a ton of interviews in two days, and then they matched you with a company. And uh, that company turned out to be Edelman in Atlanta, Georgia. So I did my fellowship there for six months. They offered me a position in healthcare. Uh, so I stayed there. I departed service in September of that year of 2018. Worked for Edelman uh, for about a full year, including the six months internship or the fellowship there. And uh, then I realized very quickly it was not my culture. And I think a lot of people have the same issue, right? You get out, it's all exciting. You think you're doing very well. And it did, they did well. I did well. Uh, but the cultural fit wasn't there. I was the only person really with military experience, the only person that was used to harsh environments, the stress levels that came with it. And when some people would think that, you know, the world's on fire to me, it's just getting started. Like, let's, let's go. <laughs> right? So, and then the, the work culture, right? Um, working 16 hour days were normal there where or 12, 16 hours. And if you left, you know, at 5 PM, everyone's going, why are you leaving so early? And I'm like, my work for the day is finished, and that's not the case. And then you have all the other considerations that didn't come with the military, which is you can be released on the spot. You can also quit at the same time. Uh, the first day I started work, I broke my foot, right? And I know. I stepped, off of, I stepped off of a curb. I've done a lot of crazy things in my life, but I stepped off of a curb, stabbed my ankle. I thought I just sprained it, so I went to work, no problem. Took off my shoe. At one point, it was purple and blown up. And uh, they're like, oh, well, you don't have any sick days built up. This is new to me, right? Like no sick days, no vacation days built up, but I have a broken foot. So uh, <laughs> I came with a cast the next day with the, the little rolly cart on one leg, rolling around the office. And uh, everyone's like, oh, that sucks. But, you know, in the military, at least I would have some sort of recuperation time um, and got a lot of shit for it too from the, the, the company, right? Uh, but... I realized at that point that it wasn't for me. And so um, I had done one deployment out here to Germany and uh, met my now wife, who is German, uh, and really loved the environment here. And she was with me in Atlanta and said, you know what, let's explore Germany. And um, the social benefits are quite substantially different here. And so I took that leap of faith, uh, went to the embassy, or got an offer letter first, went through all that, um, and joined a... Um, met some people because I think that you've mentioned it quite a few times and other people have as well that uh, informational interviews are the key to any successful transition in any application, right? Not even just government to private, but in anything. So I did a lot of informational interviews. Turns out some of the people were friends with my wife's brother. And so they were <laughs> like, hey, we need somebody with mechanical skills. Uh, why don't you come work for us in the print industry? We'll sponsor you over. So went down there with a signed contract to the uh, U.S. consulate or the German consulate in Germany, and four days later they gave me a visa and said buy your plane tickets and come on. And so I made the leap wow. of faith, 
I sold everything I owned uh, except for four bags, uh, threw everything on a Delta flight, flew over here and got my visa. So Wow. Four days. Four, four days. Uh, at that point, in, we still are in Germany. Excuse me. Uh, we're having a, a huge deficit of qualified and skilled personnel. So it's one of those things where if you have a background, if you have any sort of education related to it or certifications, Germany is all about getting you here to work for them, right? I think the German system only just wants people to pay their taxes. They don't want people to uh, just bleed the system, but to pay into it as well. And taxes are quite high here. And that's one consideration that we can talk about later as well. How about your lack of knowledge of the German language? Was that a considerate consideration? It can be. Uh, this is something that I'm quite a bit involved in Veterati and talking with people because they're, you know, in Germany, we have one of the largest installations around the world, uh, Rammstein Air Base, which is about an hour and a half from me. And we have five bases in Stuttgart and all over the place, right? So I have a lot of guys that, um, and some of the transition assistance programs, the contractors there refer them to me if people want to stay here. And that's one of the things that I talk about is, um, taxes, uh, German language, um, debt to income ratios, right? And that German language can be very prohibitive because depending on me, I'm on a family family reunification visa because my wife is German, but I still have to have a B1 language uh, knowledge within three years, right? So that can be very prohibitive and also some jobs. So like I'm very big into cars um, and race uh, race cars as well. And so like for me, I would love to work at Porsche, right? I would love to work at Porsche, Mercedes Benz, something like that. Uh, but these older German companies primarily want you to speak fluent business level, if not fluent German. And it can be very prohibitive for people without that knowledge. And so my advice to anybody who's looking to get out start taking those courses. The military, especially if you're stationed here, pays for them and it's live, not just an application like I have to use because I'm a working uh, constantly. I can't go to course. I can't spend that extra time outside of the day. Uh, but in the military, you have that opportunity if you're stationed here. Take advantage of it years out, at least get that B1 to B2. And then that way you're um, better suited to make that uh, successful transition. I love it. You know, there's, one, there's a few things I want to just briefly call out. One, the fact that you had a commander who was so gung-ho about making sure that you transitioned successfully. You know, I really feel like that's one of the primary drivers to people's success is having someone who understands that you want to leave and is supportive of that. And not only are they supportive, they're actively providing resources for you to do so successfully. Like, Absolutely. I've talked to a number of different people who come from law enforcement, military, the intelligence community, et cetera. And as soon as they identified, hey, I don't want to be a lifer, I want to leave, then they were blackballed. They were retaliated against. They were, you know, put on, you know, super crazy assignments that didn't befit their seniority and their experience level. Mm -hmm. And you know, I, I just think I look at that and I say, not only like what a waste, you know, yeah. but I also think about it from the supervisor's perspective. And I say, you had a fantastic opportunity to really support your employee and to make sure that their final days were filled with joy and encouragement mm -hmm. and blessing instead of 
I never want to work for this person ever again. This is going to taint my experience with this organization. I'm going to have a much harder time trying to figure out this monumental shift in my life versus, you know, what it could have been. And, you know, it's, it's just so sad to me, but I'm really, really happy that, you know, you had such a supportive exit and, you know, that you're, your commander was so just like, how can I help? You know? So like definitely something to, to really, really be grateful for. Absolutely. And I think, especially when you mentioned, especially like in law enforcement, that retention and that recruitment really comes into it. Right. So if you have a, if you have a bad leader there or bad supervisor, you're not going to push people into that. For me, I would tell anybody and everyone to go work for that commander again. That might be a little different with military because you're ordered to go somewhere. Uh, But within law enforcement, where you can kind of have a little bit more choice in that. If people are saying never go to this, uh, this organization, then your recruitment and retention is it's tanking. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you moved to Germany with your, with your wife, your work, you worked for that print organization for about three years or so. And now you're, you know, working for one of the largest e-commerce companies in the world. So talk to us a little bit about how you moved from the print industry to that organization. Yeah, sure. So I did that, quite loved it. I was gone all the time uh, in the print because we were doing uh, print inspection. So more like a quality assurance type, uh, setting up cameras that were checking, you know, uh, microscopic uh, issues in the uh, on print, uh, mainly in metal. So I was working in hot factories uh, one year right before COVID, I think 2020, I was gone 46 weeks in a row. And so- Whoa. Now, I was in some of the nicest places in the world, you know, the Amalfi Coast in uh, Italy or in Scotland or wherever it may be, right? All around uh, the world, my colleagues went to New Zealand and installed some equipment there, Brazil, etc. And it was fantastic. Um, But the opportunity came up and I really missed being around the security industry. It's something that I've always loved, you know, doing it with... uh, the military it was definitely had a different face to it. You know, securing Afghanistan and embassies and things like that or evacuating them was much different than what I do now. Uh, but that experience, as we talked prior to the call, it's all about how you translate that, right? And so taking that and really reflecting on what I had my resume set up before and redoing it to try to look into how I can get back in the security industry and saying, even though I had a top secret clearance, And I don't know if I can talk about all this stuff to really understanding how to transcribe that into a resume that's readable for people that have never been affiliated with the military before was that key step. And once I had that and published that to uh, kind of translated that and published it to uh, LinkedIn, um, Headhunter started calling. And then I've got uh, somebody calling from the organization I work for now, which is Amazon. And they asked me if I would like to... um, work as a as a uh, program manager for physical security and uh, physical security implementation for uh, EMEA. So I said, you know, one of those things that I also tell everybody that I'm kind of mentor in that transition period as well is take every interview you can because you're you're kind of shooting yourselves not to. If anything, it's just experience. You're networking, you're understanding what people are looking for at this time because from 20 years ago, uh, the qualifications that people look for are not the same now. So you understand what people are looking for, different education, the people they know, uh, make friends with everybody. And, uh, you know, you have to, it's a game. 
right? You, you have it to is. play it. It's so game. <laughs> I, I took the interview and I was like, you know, what the hell? Let's try it. Let's see what they have to say. Because just denying somebody for, unless they come to you, you know, initially and say, we're only going to offer you 20000 a year. Of course, then I'm going to say, please, no. Uh, but, you know, uh, I took the interview and I said, let's give it a shot, see what they have to say. And if anything, I waste an hour of my time or I learned something, which is not a waste. So did that and uh, they made an offer. And so, uh, our, of course, the first interview was just that telephone phone screening. And then with Amazon, it's quite uh, interview. <laughs> Thankfully, at least here, I don't know about Amazon worldwide, but here um, we have kind of a set standard where they have to give you feedback, either yes or no, within five days, which is fantastic, right? One one week, week one week is amazing. Uh, so had that interview, uh, the phone screening, and then I had a panel interview, and the panel interview is five interviews at forty five minutes apiece, all in one day, all back to back to back. And it's for somebody who loves talking at the end of it, I was drained, right? Because it's not really about your experience, but more about like leadership and management styles. Excuse me. Um, and so that was draining. And then after that, they called and made an offer, which was right where I was looking to go. And then about three, uh, three, four months in, my previous manager left, the regional security manager left, and I was offered the position to take his slot. Uh, and so I moved up to the regional manager of MEU, which is six countries. So the Netherlands, Germany, Austria, Poland, Czech, and Slovakia. And so now I'm sitting as the regional head for that. And so That's it's awesome, man. definitely an interesting and uh, whirlwind of craziness, right? Uh, the, the amount of responsibility thrown at you can just be overwhelming sometimes. That's amazing. And, you know, and, and, you know, that company that you reference is, I've heard, you know, obviously everyone has a different experience and, um, you know, I, I have often found that when people ask me like, Hey, is Facebook a good company to work for? Is TikTok a good company to work for? You know, I always preface that with, you know what, every company has its own pros and cons, but what really drives whether it's going to be a good fit for you or not is who you report to and what your relationship is with your direct manager. Because, you know, like with TikTok, I loved everything about TikTok. I loved the culture. I loved how they treated their employees. I loved what we were doing. But I had an absolutely crappy manager, yeah. you know, and that really, that really diluted the whole process for me, you know, whereas, yeah. you know, even if the culture is not so great at a company, you can have a really fantastic manager mm -hmm. who treats you really well and takes care of you and you never want to leave because of that, you know? And so I always tell people like, well, once you have a bad manager and then once you have a good manager, you really understand the difference and, 100%. you know, your level, your level of expectation and what you're looking for changes. Yeah. And so, um, you know, the fact that, you had a really great leader when you were in the U.S. military, and then you went and you did a couple of corporate roles, both in the States as well as Oconus. Mm -hmm. You know, that kind of gave you a really good perspective on what you were looking yeah. for. And Absolutely. it sounds it sounds like the company that you're with now has been a really, really good fit for you so far. It has. It really has. It's opened, uh, it's opened the doors to many things, especially, you know, um, in Germany maybe like some parts of the US, we are we have a huge deficit for security professionals. So hiring people can be a miserable thing here. And uh, 
you really have to take care of your people. And I think our leadership here um, understands that and tries to take care of us the best we can, because if we were to leave, it could be very detrimental to the organization. So my whole so, thing is taking care of my guys. Gotcha. So tell me a little bit more about that. Like, it sounds, I guess, just from maybe I'm I'm mis, misreading the situation, but it sounds like it, it would be much more detrimental than it usually would to lose a valued employee. So yeah, can you talk, right now, talk I think, a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I think that um, the security industry in Germany, uh, we have a lot of openings. And I think that might be because of the, the shift of companies and organizations not only growing to a more international scale or coming here and establishing headquarters, but the more emphasis is placed on security, right? And it's not just the cybersecurity, which has become such a massive topic now because I reside in physical, but along with cyber, you have to protect it from a physical aspect. And I think the companies are taking a, a bigger and more open mindset to it and the stance to it. And so they're realizing that, holy hell, we have what used to be security under like workforce health and safety or something is now we need its own department. Those own departments are going, oh, shit, we have to conduct investigations. We have to deal with local police. We have to uh, do security designs. And not only one or two people can do that, you need a department for that, especially on these international scale. And so I think that it's just exploding with more organizations moving here and opening up here or expanding that that role is only growing and growing. So when you're trying to hire here, you're competing against so many organizations that have that same job open mm. and... Uh, as a hiring manager, it can be very difficult to persuade people that we are the right fit, especially with, as you kind of alluded to a minute ago, the uh, public face of this organization uh, isn't always in the best light. So people, if they're going to take this over BMW, where are people going to go? Right? right. So it can be hard to persuade that. I mean, even when I joined this organization, and I don't mind saying it, um, when I joined this and I had the offer, my whole German family was like, why would you work there? You're going to have to pee in a bottle. You're going to have to do that. I'm like, no, 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 no. One that's much <laughs> different here, but a lot of the news sources come from the U.S., right? They're translated directly over. And so, but Germany, we have very, very strict um, workers' rights. And as a manager, I mean, for an example, if I was to tell an employee they had to work today on a Sunday, if it's not approved by HR, uh, I could be fine. The company could be fined up to I think ten or fifteen thousand euro, and there is a potential if it's a multiple abuse case where I could go to jail for up to two years for telling somebody to work on a Sunday or a holiday. Right. Also, if they work more than ten hours a day, is a no go, uh, or if they work within eleven hours of another shift. So it's wow. very, very strict. And we have uh, workers' councils, basically like a labor union, at all of the all of the big sites here. Uh, and they have almost complete authority. And to, to even if they deny something, you have to go to arbitration. You have to pay for arbitration. You have to get our own lawyers. And it can take four to six months to get a rectification. It's difficult. Wow. So that so what you're basically saying is that the emphasis is skewed extremely heavily on worker rights. Yes. And not the okay. actual employer. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Which 
That sounds amazing to me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's nice. But I mean, there's things like we have a public holiday, uh, October 3rd, but we're looking to have our uh, EMEA-wide team meeting, you know, uh, of all of us getting together for once, twice a year, which is really nice. But October 3rd here in the middle of the week is a holiday. To get my guys to be able to travel on a holiday is going to take so much approval. Uh, everybody has to agree to it first. Uh, it has to be approved by HR. Uh, they have to give us time and a half pay, and we have to have another day off. And it's it's a pain just to say everybody wants to go and meet for once in person. And it can be painful. So there has, has to be that balance. And that's where that communication, open communication between us, HR, and the Workers' Council has to be fluid. You have to make friends everywhere, like with any organization. Yeah, I mean, but also, like, I think in the U.S., and I'll speak just from my own experience, you know, it's always, it's it's what the company decides, and we're just kind of dangling mm-hmm. at the end of a string, yeah. you know? And obviously, that, that that's a very subjective characterization to make, because not every company is like that, you know? But it... It really sounds like in order to do anything like that, you have to go through a lot of approval and you have to really justify it, you know, whereas there's hardly any justification, if if any, in the U.S. And so, you know, I would imagine that if I were working in Germany, that I would feel very supported by that type mm-hmm. of arrangement, that knowing that, hey, you know, I do have rights here and my rights are actually cared about and they're enforced. And um, that that really, at least in my opinion, it really lends itself to a, a quality work-life balance for the most part. I think that a lot of it comes from also, it's, uh, it's an investment in the workforce for Germany, right? Because uh, we're, we're not, as there's this myth that we're a socialist country, which we are not, uh, but there are social aspects to everyday life, right? So um, we do pay for healthcare here. You know, it's a split between us and the employer um, and it comes directly out of our paychecks. But if we were to have that burnout, which is a thing here, I never heard of it coming from the military and then uh, organization before here, um, never heard of burnout before, but coming to Germany and people talking about it so openly, it's burnout is when you go for three, six months and just completely stop working because your doctor says that's okay. And you get paid during that time, right? But the company doesn't have somebody fill that spot. So maybe profits tank, uh, it affects down the road and the healthcare costs go up, which is kind of subsidized by the government as well. So if they take care of the people, there's less burnout, which means it's a less burden on the government. Hmm. So it works for everybody at the end, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's a really good point that you make. So let's talk a little bit more about you know, the actual immigration process from the U.S. to Germany. So you said that you basically, all you had to do is present a signed letter to the embassy and they granted a a visa. I mean, is it really that easy? So this was in 2018. So things could have changed pre-post-COVID. So I'm going to speak on my experience. I also took some notes here as well that I want to talk about because I did reach out to a few groups before this conversation to say, hey, what are some points that you would like to see covered as well from the German or coming to Germany, right? And immigration. Um, there are a few different ways uh, to immigrate here. Uh, one of those is direct from service uh, coming off SOFA status, which has its own craziness, right? 
me, I did not do SOFA. I have enough to talk about it to get me in trouble. So please also people do your own research, reach out to me and we can explore it together. I have plenty of, um, of people that we can, uh, I can help you network with as well. But um, for me, I did a worker's visa initially because my wife and I were not married at the time. We were just dating. And so for that, it was easiest. And it, like I said, it took four days at the consulate in Germany, uh, in Atlanta with a signed offer letter from the, uh, from the company in Germany. So that one, all I had to do was the problem, the, the painful process there is for any type of immigration, you're going to need everything translated, birth certificates for you, spouse, children, um, marriage decrees, divorce decrees, everything has to be translated. And if it needs a, um, oh, what's it called? It's not, I'm sorry, I'm losing the words here. I wrote it down as well. Attestation. If it's not, it has to have notarization or attestation as well. Uh, background checks, fingerprints, those can take a long time. So what I recommend to everybody is if you're out of country, go to the nearest consulate for Germany and talk with the immigration office there. All of them are wanting you to come here, especially if you're a skilled worker or education or educated worker. They want you to come here. That's their mission, really, is to get people to come here. So talk with them and they will give you their advice and exactly what you need to set you up for success before you even get that offer letter. So you can do your own due diligence there and save yourself time on the back end. Because if I wouldn't have had that done and gotten the offer letter, I'd be stuck for months trying to get all that planned out, right? Especially because some places you have to go to in person in the state to the local courthouse to get some of those uh, documents that you need. And those can be painful, especially for me where I was young, lost a lot of things in the, the 30, trans, uh, 30 moves I made in the military, it can be painful. So think about that beforehand. But um, there are a few different ways to immigrate. One is the worker's visa, which was what I got initially, a family reunification visa, if you have that. You can also do a heritage, it's something like a heritage visa if your family had to immigrate because of the war. So I know a few that family were Jewish and left uh, prior to the start or during uh, World War II. And if you can show direct lineage from that of them being German citizens, you can also get a German uh, citizenship, not just a visa, but a citizenship. And so if you were able to do that, uh, and then the there is a job seekers visa, which is open for like, I think 90 days, and then a language course visa. So if you get out of the military and you say, I want to come learn German, there's a visa for that as well. So all those, but the biggest thing there is make sure you talk with the local consulate if you're out of country or the embassy to figure out what you need to uh, immigrate and to make it smooth because you don't want to break that window once you get in country, not have all the documentation and then be deported or be barred from coming back. Or if you're in country, there is the foreigner's office at every uh, city or village. Um, it's called the Ausländerbehörde, and you go there and you can talk with them. Because a big problem that I find in the in Germany is we have 16 federal states, and each state in each city has slightly different requirements. For example, in the state that I'm in, I know people that are in a city 10 minutes from me that had to do an integration course, which is the German tests. You have to learn about German culture, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Same visa that I'm on, but mine didn't tell me how to do any of that. So it's up to whoever's kind of working that and make sure you get everything in writing. Uh, Germans are all about documentation and having paper copies. So whatever you agree to, whatever they tell you, get it in writing and uh, just 
talk to people as hard as it can be, learn the language, talk to people, immerse yourself. Yeah, that makes sense. How about taxes? You want to jump into that? It's painful, right? Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, man, where do I start? So as somebody who came from the military, I'm 100% uh, considered disabled from the VA as well. Um, and so for that, uh, it can be, it's not a direct tax on that, but you have to claim it for your tax burden because it can put you up in percentage as to what you have to pay for taxes. Uh, retirement can be taxed, but what I recommend to people is there is a German United States tax treaty on the IRS website. Dig into that, read it, understand it, because it can be painful. As far as like local taxes go, they're quite heavy, but a lot of things come out directly out of your check. We do pay taxes and file taxes just like Americans do at the end of the year, um, but there are a lot of small additional taxes like church tax. If you don't tell the state that you're not religious, they will take church tax out of your pay, right? Uh, they will, if you live in the east or west of Germany, uh, until a certain point, you had to pay taxes to the west of Germany for the reunification and the building up because there's that huge disparity between the east and west, especially when it comes to like salaries and the way of living. Uh, and there's all these little things that add up. Healthcare comes directly out of your check. So when you expect, and I did too, when I, when I first uh, moved here, and I'm like, okay, my salary is the same as the U.S., but my paycheck is half of what it was in the U.S. And it completely like blew me away, right? Uh, and my bonus, uh, I got a sign-on bonus. And um, it was, I'd say right about 10,000 or so, but I got like 4,000. And I'm like, where did it all go? Right? <laughs> I show it to my wife and I'm like, I speak enough German to get by, right? Conversational. Uh, I show it to my wife and I'm like, on the tax statement, like, I don't understand this. She's like, starts laughing. She's like, oh, no, the government did that. It's fine. Uh, that's standard. It's right? fine. It's fine. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> you get that back, right? You you do get a certain percentage back, just like the U.S. When you get a bonus there, you get, uh, you know, they tax it at, what, like 28% or something like that. And you do sometimes get a portion of that back, depending on a majority or a ton of factors. Uh, but that's just, uh, that initial hit from it is just, like, eye-opening. And what I also incorporated since then to people, because if I was in the U.S. making the same now, I'm making almost double what my paycheck is here, right? Um, and so what I tell people now and what I'm helping people get out, one of the first questions I asked, and I mentioned at the start of this, was well, what is your debt to income ratio, right? Some people I've talked to, I talked to one, uh, he was an E4 getting out of the army, and he said, oh, I'm like 60, 70,000 in uh, credit card debt. And I said, do not stay here. Go to America get a higher salary, you're healthy and young, so hopefully you don't injure yourself and have a crazy uh, hospital bill. But uh, you can pay that down sooner and then move over here because you will not be able to do that on a decreased net income here. And so it's all about what you're willing to accept, right? Or what your, um, what your expectations are. And that expectation management has to be a really thought out thing. I play rugby for this uh, for the city here, and uh, two years ago I did my uh, ACL, my meniscus, broke my tibia and my patella, all in one hit, ripped everything. Uh, took an ambulance ride, uh, drugs, therapy. It cost me four days in the hospital. It cost me twenty euro. My elbow, Whoa. I broke my elbow. Yeah, I did my elbow in the states, nineteen thousand. <laughs> so. It's a huge, huge thing, right? And my care was some of the best in the world for my knee. 
but I didn't have to worry about that because that's what insurance is for here, right? The whole time I'm laying on the field going, all right, who's taking me to the hospital? They're like, no, the ambulance is coming. I'm like, I can't pay for that. And I'm just, no, no, it's free. Okay. So it's <laughs> complete mindset change. Uh, that's but, amazing. Yeah. And so it's, it's about you, your family. Uh, I was watching, there's a few videos and I recommend for anybody, no matter what country you're going to, because it's a complete culture change is to get in those local Facebook groups because there's a plethora of them for expats. Uh, get in those local Facebook groups, make connections, have the informational interviews with other expats as well to manage those expectations and find all those little details. There's a family here called the Black Forest family. They do a lot of YouTube videos and they did a whole breakdown on taxes because it's a huge thing because everyone thinks our taxes are like 50 something percent, which isn't true. Um, but they did this cost comparison of almost the exact same people from the U.S. to here. And if you're single in the same job, same position in the U.S., you will make more net right after everything comes out. Whereas here uh, with a family, you're going to make more at the end. And it's a really informational interview. I'd be happy to share the link if anybody wants it, um, because I think she's becoming a doctor of something and she's all about the numbers. And it's fantastic. Um, healthcare costs are so much. Uh, no, healthcare. Healthcare costs aren't cheaper, but also um, for the kids, for schooling. Uh, kid goes to private school here, it's 300 a month, right? And my wife's like, oh my God, it's going to be so expensive. And I'm thinking about private school in the U.S. And I'm like, oh God, it's going to be 15000 something a year. <laughs> Cheapest. And it turns out it's like 300 a month for private. That's wow. That's, and that's full-time uh, with daycare and all too. No. Okay, this is okay. We're uh, we're moving to we're moving to Germany. It's, it's official. Yeah, but in Colorado it was sixteen hundred a month. It's completely different. Yeah, so that's uh, small considerations. That literally makes me sick to my stomach. You know, um, we're uh, I know I know some of our friends. They have a, a daughter who has a disability, and. You know, they're going all over the place, all these different therapy appointments. You know, it's just like constant. They found this school here in Houston that does everything in one place. Mm -hmm. And it's literally the only school in the entire U.S. to offer something wow. like this. But it's 42000 a year. And I don't even for people who make two fifty, three hundred thousand dollars $300,000 a year, that's still a kick in the pants. You know, and I'm just like, how do how do people afford this? You know, without taking out obviously loans and in just you know strapping themselves on on a on a rocket ship from a yeah. an interest perspective for a long period of time. But yeah. you know, hearing you talk about how that's like 300 bucks a month or 300 euros or whatever the case may be, like that's amazing. You know, yeah. so. Um, you know, especially a school like that could run a hell of a lot higher here. So I don't want to say that they couldn't. Sure, sure. It's, it's painful, especially when you have somebody with a, a, a disability of sorts. It's a medical problem. We need to take care of people. Right, exactly. Well, you've definitely given us a lot to think about. And I know this is going to really resonate with a ton of people who are, you know, not only deployed overseas, but also serving overseas, living overseas, and are just kind of considering, should I go back to the U.S.? Should I stay here? You know, what are the pros and cons, et cetera? And, you know, I'll be honest, like, I'm just kind of like, I want to move to Germany now. 
you know, it sounds awesome. But, uh, you know, as we wrap up the podcast, Zach, you know, can you describe for people who are going to be watching, you know, any advice that you have on the transition process, people who are considering the transition and, Mm -hmm. you know, just give, give, give it to us, brother. Sure. So two things. Uh, first, I'd like to talk, and we didn't really uh, talk about it, was the SOFA status. If you're coming off a of SOFA status, and I can only speak about what I know from the German perspective, talk with everyone, transition early. I mean, that goes without saying for every position, whether it's law enforcement or the military. Uh, SOFA status, especially here in Europe, you're going to have to change your lights on your car. You're going to have to uh, um, do different things to meet EU standards, right? They could be very cost prohibitive depending on the model. If it's not uh, a widely sold vehicle here, that's one of the big things. I know people that do get out and want to maintain that SOFA status for whatever reason, whether it's uh, healthcare or um, to be able to shop at the BX, PX, whatever. Uh, and people do take jobs at the uh, on post and bagging groceries or whatever, cashier uh, to maintain that SOFA status, which is absolutely acceptable. Uh, but you don't have to do that. Right. You don't have to take the job. If you have options to set yourself up for a better life or what you want to do, we only have one life. You got to make the best of it. Right. And one thing that I can say that I made the mistake on early is not understanding that there is a roadmap laid out for you in every position you can think of if you're willing to explore it. And so one of the things that I do is everybody that comes to me looking for advice on the transition is to figure out where you want to retire. And that is the hardest thing. And I've never had anybody give me an answer within a week, right? And not where is in location, but that could play a big part into it. But where is in like the position? For example, I love cars, like I said before. If I want to be the chief security officer of Porsche, right? It's easy. If I know that, the rest of it's easy because LinkedIn has given you that roadmap now. So what you do is you look up the CSO of Porsche right now, it's Florian Hacke, and you see... Okay, where did he go to school? What certifications he had? What positions did he hold prior? Uh, And the most important thing to me is who does he know? And then what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna do the same for Mercedes-Benz. I'm gonna do the same for Ford. I'm gonna do the same for Hyundai, right? And I'm gonna take all those in the same industry and I'm gonna say, what all do they have? And I'm gonna print them out, put them side by side. What education do they all have? What certs? What job titles do they hold? And then the last one, who do they all know? If I can make that correlation between all of them, that is the exact roadmap I need to do to get into that position that I want to retire in. And that can absolutely change. I thought I would love public affairs coming from the military. So I was like, okay, pull in, I'm going Edelman. And I'm going to be in this uh, writing um, press releases. Realized very quickly that I didn't like it. So my priorities changed, my, my outcomes changed. And it took me forever to realize that the roadmap is there. It's public for you. And if you can figure that out, and uh, nail it down, then it's public. You know where to go. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's what so few people don't understand about LinkedIn is LinkedIn is, in my opinion, the single biggest force multiplier for the job seeker out there because it's the only website that exists that allows you to put a face with a name and find anyone that works at that company. I mean, yep. you know, like we've, yeah, I, I just don't think people really recognize the true value of it. Like when I'm coaching people, 
during a formal session and I'm going through all the different levels of functionality that LinkedIn offers. And there's a ton. I mean, I think most people only scratch the surface of what LinkedIn provides the job seeker, especially the search, the search functionality that LinkedIn offers. I mean, I can search, you know, all 250,000 Microsoft employees. I can then do a search for investigator, find every single person that, ha that has been an investigator either in the past or currently at Microsoft. And then I can start doing tailored searches and see how many of these investigators have a law enforcement background. How many of these investigators come from a military background? Because when you're reaching out for those informational interviews, maybe you're asking for an internal referral. You know, obviously you want to increase the likelihood that someone responds positively to you. And the one of the biggest ways that you can do that is through the shared background, yeah. you know, and say, hey, we both come from law enforcement. I'd love to pick your brain about this position. And LinkedIn allows you the, the tools to be able to find those people, you know, yeah. and you know, like what a boon for the job mm -hmm. seekers nowadays, because it's not, I tell people all the time, it's not just about who you know, it's also about leveraging the network of the people within your sphere, you know? And, and it's just like, I don't know, it can get overwhelming, obviously, yeah. but understanding the information that we have at our fingertips that exists through LinkedIn, but also, um, other groups like ACES International and other organizations that exist out there, depending on what your industry is and your area of specialization, you know, like we have so much more information now at our fingertips, fingertips than we ever did before and understanding how to harness that information and using it to achieve the goals that we're looking for is, at least for me, it's an immense encouragement. Absolutely. And I think it's important to, to note as well. Um, I had the question come up today from somebody I'm uh, talking to is that for veterans uh, and transitioning members uh, or active duty, you get one free year of LinkedIn uh, premium and yep. it's easy to activate. Just give it a Google and uh, it'll come up and you can activate it for one year. And that that premium is worth its weight in gold. Um, as well as it's something I didn't realize till I became a hiring manager here is you can find videos on it uh, on LinkedIn and online of what the recruiters are see on the recruiting platform and how it's utilized to find other candidates. And then that way you can tailor your profile to exactly what they're looking for. And that to me was a complete mind opener as to how I need to, and I still need to do it today. And to me, it's like that constitution is, and it needs to always be updated. You need to, it's a living document. You have to put yeah. a lot of effort into it and keeping it up because priorities for organizations change, um, requirements change, new certifications come out for from ACES or whatever. And so if you can really stay on top of that, you can make yourself the most ideal candidate and, uh, you know, put yourself first and everything. I couldn't agree more, man. And, you know, I tell a lot of my clients that, your qualifications get you in the door, but usually it's your ability to successfully assimilate into culture that gets you the job. Yeah. You know, because there's a dearth of, of candidates out there with really specific qualifications, but, you know, how do you get along with people? How do you problem solve? How do you approach critical thinking? How do you interact with stakeholders of various seniority levels and stuff like that? Like that's ultimately what's going to drive, you know, your longevity at a company. How, how are you teachable? 
you know, whatever the case may be like, um, and having these informational interviews that we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast with all of these different individuals and saying, Hey, tell me honestly, what it's like for you day to day? What's the culture like? What's the environment like? Like ask all these questions outside of the formalized hiring process, yeah. you know? So once you get to the hiring process or the interview process, you can have much more targeted questions instead of the, I, I always call them, call them general or superficial questions. Yeah. You know, because if, if you're like just asking very, very generalized questions, you know, that really that what that means is I haven't really done my research, you know, and, you know, like I, from a, from an interview process, that's meant to be as bi-directional as possible. You know, I'm interviewing you, you're interviewing me. We're both sussing out whether we're the right fit for each other. And I really want to ask as targeted questions as possible, because especially when you're coming out of government and you're looking for that first corporate position you want that job to be as as soft a landing as possible yes you know because it's going to be such a night and day just total culture shock you know and you know having those conversations beforehand can really help soften the blow if you will especially as you mentioned finding people that previously worked at the company as well are going to give you for the majority of the time majority of cases are going to give you the most realistic uh, view on it you know if somebody comes to me asking about my organization of course it becomes uh who is this person what is their intention how do i talk in a more political way but if you find somebody that's left the company they'd be more inclined to speak on the real no shit experience that they had and uh, how to navigate that or even if they're a hiring manager what questions would they have asked or what questions did this role come with and yeah so and you, you know under their- understanding how each company interviews you know, if like from the Amazon perspective, it's all about leadership principles, yeah. you know, whether you're in an individual contributor role or whether you're going into a people manager role, it's it's the same thing. And, yeah. you know, I really getting a sense of like one of the clients that I, I just got done coaching, he just landed a job with Amazon back in the States. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like his, our, our focus on, leadership principles and aligning his law enforcement experience to those examples and those questions, in my opinion, were pretty key in him distinguishing himself from other applicants. Because if you're not aware of how each company interviews and what they really focus on, then you're kind of just shooting yourself in the foot. Yeah. You know, and what, what one of us wants to go through an interview process and not be successful. Yeah. You know, so take the time, do the legwork, talk to as many people as you can, obviously take what they say with a grain of salt and, you know, just really prepare as much as possible because, you know, we only get one shot at this, Yeah. you know, and uh, it's just important to, to prepare, but Hey, any other advice that you have for people? Take every interview you can, as we talked about uh, before the call. And to me, one of the key things was taking every interview offered to me. Um, Don't think that just because you're military, it was kind of sold to me before getting out, was because you're military, everybody wants you. Because you did special operation things, everybody wants you. And I got out and I'm like, okay, who's giving me a job, right? And it doesn't work that way. And it took a very hard, fast fall to realize that that's not how life works. Uh, And so 
But once I figured out my tactics and how to apply for these and do the informational interviews, when you're given them, even if it's something you're not sure you really want to take, as long as it's not a hard no, take the interview, get that experience, get that experience talking to people. Because like I said, at 17 years old, I had no interview experience. Shoeing a horse was like, can you hold a horse's foot? And hand on it? Yes. <laughs> I absolutely can. I'm strong enough to do this. Right. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, uh, interviewing for a corporate position is much, uh, much harder. It can be just a complete uh, mental strain on some of those. And so take those interviews, get the experience. And if you have to say no, it's okay. Uh, and then lastly, uh, for resumes. I get a lot of people uh, who come to me for resume review and I'll happily do them no matter what industry, but you really need to focus on getting people in the industry to want to review your resume. People come to me with pharmacy resumes because they want to work in, in pharmacy. Okay. I can give you general advice on like setup or so, but I'm not going to give you any advice on um, on the actual like day-to-day -day or your metrics because I don't know and I shouldn't know that and I shouldn't give you advice. And that's a mistake I made when getting out is I let everybody and anybody tell me what I did wrong with my resume. And so I was changing it a hundred times a week, back and forth and back and forth. And it was literally night and day. And one person would tell me, take this off. Another person was like, why did you take that off? And they're both CEOs. Like, so who do I listen to, right? And so if you find those people in the industry and then you, those your resume is kind of like your elevator pitch. You have to be able to sell it. And even if you and I have, uh, you Eric and I have the same background, our resumes should look different because we have to sell it different. Exactly. So we have to do what works for us, and that is about how to do your resume. Sure, you can get that. You can go to Eric for getting your resume written and all, but make sure you can sell it. Right at the end of the day, yeah. it's your baby. Sell it. Amen, man. I could not agree more. You know, there's tens of thousands of resume writers out there and all of them offer something different. Some of them don't offer anything at all. You know, um, your resume writing is an art. You know, it's not just about putting something on paper. It's about listening and drawing out as much value as possible and then articulating that into language that everyone can understand. And that takes, that takes skill you know, to be yeah. perfectly honest. And, you know, if you're coming out of the government, whether you're in the IC, the military, law enforcement, teaching, you know, whatever the case may be, and you come from a specialized background, really consider whether someone at a company that charges 200 bucks for a resume, you know, or, or someone who charges 2000 for a resume yeah. can really offer you the type of value that you're seeking. Because, Every resume writer is going to give you lip service. They're going to say, hey, I can absolutely do that, you know, but really dig in. Really, it's like, no, how how would you translate my experience coming from a special operations role? You know, if I did A, B, C, and D, you know, during the course of my career, how would you put that on paper? Like really drill down and, and ask them very, very targeted questions about how they would do that. And then you'll really, really get a sense of, okay, I feel comfortable proceeding a little bit further or no, this person has no idea how to translate this whatsoever. So don't just take their word for it. You know, yeah, really absolutely. drill down, ask questions, ask their previous recommendations, you know, whether they were satisfied with the product they received, 
and whether it's gotten them any activity on their job search. That's really the the measure of success for a lot of people. So anyways, that's a whole other conversation that I could get into. But Zach, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast today. You've given us a lot to think about, but also you've provided a lot of value that we really haven't discussed previously. And ultimately that's one of the the major, you know, um, benefits to doing these podcasts is getting a really comprehensive and diverse perspective from a great variety of people. Um, so if you have any, you know, um, feedback for, for Zach, feel free to PM him on LinkedIn. Feel free to leave a comment when this post goes up on LinkedIn. Um, if you have any additional questions, feel free to, you know, reach out, let him know as well. Um, thank you again so much for sharing your story and, uh, I hope you have a great day. Yeah, you as well. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Thank you.